This session is dealing with um, Michael Heiser's Unseen Realm. Uh, my name is Matthew McAfee, and I serve as provost at Welch College. So uh, thank you so much for coming. I guess there's some interest in Heiser. The spiritual realm in the Old Testament uh, is a worthwhile topic of inquiry. We don't have to go very far in the pages of Scripture to see this theme emerge. In fact, we confront it, this reality in the very first two verses of the Old Testament. So Genesis 1, 1 through 2, in the beginning God created the heaven, heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void and darkness was upon the face of the deeps and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. These statements tell us there is a God standing outside of our world who alone is responsible for the, its creation. The spiritual realm has brought the physical realm into existence. Furthermore, even after the raw materials of the world were created, the Spirit of God continued to fashion those materials into something beautiful and orderly, conducive for the habitation of all sorts of created beings, each with its own design and purpose. Yet we are also confronted with an important realization. Our information about the spiritual realm is limited. More particularly, we have no information about the origins of the inhabitants of the celestial realm. Rather, the Old Testament scriptures assume their existence in the background of the redemption story. Michael Heiser attempts to peel back the veil, concealing our view of that spiritual realm. The subtitle of his book, The Unseen Realm, uh, makes this purpose explicit. And that subtitle is Recovering the Supernatural World of the Bible. In his mind, we have been conditioned to ignore this aspect of biblical revelation. To use his language, Christian tradition and modern sensibilities have functioned as an interpretive filter, keeping us from seeing the unseen realm and the biblical world as the ancient reader would have seen it. The following statement from chapter 1 captures this purpose well. This is on page 13. What you're reading in this book won't overturn the important uh, apple carts of Christian doctrine. But you'll come across plenty of mind grenades. Have no fear. It will be a fascinating faith-building exercise. What you'll learn is that a theology of the unseen world that derives exclusively from the text, understood through the lens of the ancient pre-modern world view of the authors, informs every Bible doctrine in significant ways. If it sounds like I'm over-promising, just withhold judgment till you've read the rest of the book. As I've read through this book, I got the recurring sense that Heiser has always been keenly interested in the supernatural realm and that several discoveries throughout his scholarly career have further fueled that interest. As a result, Heiser's method for Old Testament study has come to be filtered through that interest in the supernatural realm. Along the way, he encountered the comparative method, reading the Old Testament in light of ancient texts, and more particularly, the unique way this has been applied to the interpretation of Old Testament, the Old Testament among evangelical scholars. I'm thinking primarily of John Walton in this regard. The comparative method for Walton has become a hermeneutical method. One cannot fully interpret the Old Testament without first filtering it through the conceptual framework of the ancient Near East. The approach of Heiser in his unseen realm is heavily influenced by this interpretive framework. My articulation of Heiser's intellectual development may or may not be entirely accurate, but it is true 
of what I, the impression that I, I get from reading the book, both as an evangelical and as an Old Testament scholar. You may wonder why I am devoting an entire presentation to the substance of this book, but maybe by the attendance, it's not, there's no question why. You all are interested in this, not interested in me, for sure. Uh, but the motivation of this presentation is that I keep encountering the book in my interactions with students and church members alike, uh, both Friel Baptists and non-Friel Baptists, whether it's up in Canada when I was there this summer, I heard about it up there, whether it's at my own church or whether it's among students. Um, it's a very popular book. It's had a lot of impact uh, across evangelicalism. Uh, he has produced teacher's guides and online resources to accompany the book's use in personal and local church contexts. Logos has even produced a full-length documentary here recently uh, with over 1.8 million views on YouTube. And of course, uh, most of you know, he, I'm saddened that he, of his early passing away uh, back earlier this year. Uh, so we need to be in prayer, as I'm sure we have been, for, he, for his family as they're mourning uh, this loss. And I, I only knew him as an acquaintance um, at various seminars and conferences and things, and have had some interaction with him uh, a bit. But I'd never really engaged with this book until uh, here recently because of how much interest people have in it. And because of the types of endorsements that the book has received, I, I was quite curious about, about the um, content. So uh, what I'm going to do here this morning uh, is going to be of two, two pieces, two parts of this presentation. First, I want to examine the overall aim and method of the book. How is he going about talking about the spiritual realm? And then secondly, I want to comment on a few specific points of interpretation that I think are, uh, merit further discussion. So first of all, uh, aim and method. Aim and method. In the opening lines of the book, Heiser focuses on his discovery of the meaning of Elohim in Psalm 82.1, which becomes the linchpin of his argument. He offers the following translation. Uh, God, Elohim, stands in the divine assembly, which he translates uh, very specifically there. You could translate that adequately, assembly of God. Administers judgment in the midst of the gods, Elohim. Because the second occurrence of Elohim is in this verse represents the assembly in which God takes a stand, it cannot be translated in the singular God, but rather as the plural gods. He concludes, there it was in plain sight, plain as day. The God of the Old Testament was part of an assembly, a pantheon of other gods, page 11. Heiser goes on to express his dismay that he had never encountered this interpretation before, having read the Bible, received a seminary education, and studied Hebrew. Instead, he had always been taught that references to plural gods in the Old Testament referred to idols which clearly does not make sense in this context. However, I would point out that this understanding is an overly simplistic one, constituting an either-or scenario. Furthermore, I would, encounter, I would counter that his caricature of evangelical scholarship on this question is not entirely correct. He claims that evangelical interpretations of Psalm 82 are, quote, disturbingly weak, and leaves the impression that most take the second use of Elohim as reference to human rulers who rule unjustly, while others have related it somehow to the Trinity. He, he keeps bringing up the idea of Trinitarian interpretations which don't do adequate justice to this passage. Heiser never cites representative examples of interpreters who hold these views, much less their reasons for holding them. 
though in a footnote he does address um, um, limitations that he can't address it fully here, but, but refers you to the companion website and uh, describes these approaches as flawed thinking. Classical conservative commentator Franz Dalich, you may have heard of him, uh, Kyle and Dalich, their commentator, commentaries on the Old Testament, he, he defends the human rulers uh, interpretation against uh, Enlightenment scholars uh, like Hubfeld, Groff, and Knobel who interpreted Elohim as angels. In fact, most evangelicals have followed this second interpretation, that is, of angels, that Elohim here means angels. Derek Kidner is a good representative of this view. He rejects the divine counsel interpretation of this passage and interprets it as assembly of God. He says, since the term counsel suggests governing authority, which he believes is absent from the entities mentioned here. Uh, whatever they're doing, uh, the, the context here is that of them being judged in some way. Surprisingly, Heiser never mentions a third possibility, which some have suggested, the amalgamation of the human ruler and divine views. The psalm could, could be condemning human rulers who were under the influence of evil spiritual forces, false gods, uh, or fallen angels. The point I wish to make here is simply this. The interpretive options are not simply weak evangelical approaches on the one hand versus strong scholarly critical approaches on the other. It's a mixture of both. It's not the way he presents it. Throughout the book, Heiser describes the perspective of Israel as a supernatural, page 13, or divine counsel, page 27, worldview. So he says the Israelites have a supernatural worldview or what he calls a divine council worldview. Um, this is interesting terminology. Um, he con contrasts this viewpoint with modern rationalistic understanding of today's Christian interpreter, which is, he also explains is mixed in with, quote, creed statements, creedal statements from the Christian tradition. To mitigate this interpretive obstacle, we must learn to read the Bible quote, through the eyes of an ancient reader, end quote, since we, quote, do not share the cognitive framework of the biblical writers. Um, this approach is very much like John Walton, as I mentioned, and I, I have a quote here from John Walton just so you can kind of see uh, what he's doing. He's an evangelical, um, ancient Near Eastern kind of background scholar, and he's done a lot with this idea, and he and Heiser are, you know, we, we have a group at ETS, and Walton is on that committee that we uh, are working on together. We've had Heiser present several times over the years, and Walton presents at this um, Old Testament background seminar. And so he's talked about this for a number of years, and he makes this statement. He says, since we do not share the cognitive framework of the biblical writers, uh, or uh, rather, I'm sorry, I, I skipped on to, um, uh, to Walton. Since the biblical text is a cultural artifact, Emerging from, an, from an ancient context, we should not be surprised that there are frequent occasions in which the meaning of the text will not be immediately transparent to us. He then clarifies, if we do not bring that, the information from the ancient, quote, cognitive environment, or this phrase is one that he has coined, cognitive environment, if we don't bring that to bear on the text, we will automatically impose the parameters of our modern worldview, thus risking serious distortion of the meaning. So I want to ask this question, what is that cognitive framework through which we must interpret the text? 
It is the so-called ancient Near Eastern way of understanding reality. We have to get into the mindset, uh, that mindset, if we are going to truly understand the Old Testament. How do we access that mindset? Well, it is through the text the ancient Near Eastern world left behind for us to read. Unfortunately, many of these texts were not discovered until the 19th century or later. We have never even heard of Ugaritic until it was discovered in the 20th century in the, early, in the 1930s. Another problem facing us is the fact that these texts are written in various languages, which have only recently been deciphered since the discovery of these ancient texts to begin with. So Sumerian, Akkadian, Elamite, Hurrian, Hittite, Ugaritic, just to name a few. And which ancient Near Eastern viewpoint offers the best lens for interpreting Scripture? Since uh, these various ancient Near Eastern languages and cultures represented different perspectives. Finally, I might also add that these cultures were operating within a world, uh, within a broadly conceived mythological framework. In fact, mythology may provide the one unifying factor of them all. The cognitive environment through which we are to interpret the biblical text is essentially a mythological worldview. I will say uh, recently there was a paper circulating that um, Walton sent out to students at Wheaton and in that document he uh, denies that uh, the Old Testament or the book of Genesis for instance is historical information. It's much more along the lines of a, a mytho mythological uh, or at least cultural memory or some we don't we can't gain access to historical information through Genesis. Um, so and a lot of times You'll, you'll hear people talking like this. Some have even suggested that this approach of Walton and the thing that Heiser is following along here um, is a, sort of a new Gnosticism. Another interpretive problem for Heiser is his distinction between filter and mosaic. A filter, according to Heiser, is both a means of eliminating unwanted elements in one's interpretation. Make sure I get this right here. I'm not accustomed to using this technology, so please excuse me. <laughs> so we can eliminate unwanted materials and also provide a systematic representation of material. Reading the Bible with modern eyes, influenced by, modern, or by certain presuppositions in church tradition, removes unwanted elements from the goal, uh, with the goal of providing a systematic interpretation. According to the history of the discovery of most ancient Near Eastern literature that we're talking about here, therefore, the church has been misinterpreting the Old Testament for most of its existence, except for the last 150 years or so. Heiser urges us to ditch our filters in order to read the Bible afresh and anew as a, quote, mosaic made up of, quote, bits of scattered data that will eventually emerge as a beautiful tapestry once we, once we understand them in their proper light, page 15. As Heiser confesses, the single most important passage that led him to shred his interpretive filters was Psalm 82. Psalm 82 and its divine counsel worldview has become the interpretive key for interpreting the Old Testament. My main concern here is twofold. First, Heiser has essentially exchanged one interpretive filter for another. I don't believe he represents the Judeo-Christian interpretive tradition fairly, but as cherry-picked interpretations he disagrees with and portrays them as representative of the whole tradition. 
That criticism aside, we'll put that aside for a moment, Heiser rejects the Christian interpretive tradition and constructs his own interpretive filter informed by a recent subset of evangelical scholarship on the Hebrew Bible and the ancient Near East. I say subset here to emphasize that this particular viewpoint represents a relatively small and recent segment of scholarship. Critical scholarship would reject Heiser's conclusions outright because he believes the Bible is true. Most in the academy believe the early Israelites were polytheistic, or at best henotheistic, which means Yahweh was a chief deity, the deity of, uh, among other deities in the pantheon. So they would not even accept um, this formulation, and that over time monotheism kind of develops out of this mythological perspective uh, till we get to the end of the Old Testament canon and have this more monotheistic viewpoint. Other evangelical Old Testament scholars, including myself and others, believe the view espoused by Heiser and those like Walton and, and, and folks like him, I think that's all misguided. Second, so that's the first point, this ancient Near Eastern interpretive framework. Number two, Heiser has made an interpretively difficult verse from Psalm 82 the key for unlocking the meaning of the Old Testament or of, the Old, of Old Testament theology at least as it relates to the supernatural realm. Psalm 82 is a fascinating text. I love this text. And it's one that deserves exegetical attention, all of the attention that it has received for a number of years. Nonetheless, we need to exhibit greater caution and humility when it comes to the certainty of our interpretations of problematic texts, like this one. Let me emphasize that. We need to have caution and humility in affirming or asserting our interpretations of problematic texts. Even more, the supernatural realm often stands behind the narratives of the Hebrew Old Testament, assumed by its authors in the background of Scripture's meta-narrative. The, quote, unseen realm, to borrow Heiser's expression, is essentially just that, unseen. It's unseen. We don't get a lot of explanation regarding the supernatural realm. It's just there in the background, and at various times, its members step into the seen realm, while at other times, the dividing curtain is pulled back momentarily for biblical authors to describe the scene for us in writing. For this reason, Heiser's interpretive approach puts the focus on less understood passages as the key for interpreting the clearer passages. I think it should be the other way around allow the clearly understood passages of Scripture to guide our interpretation of those that are less clear. The interpretive approach I've just described is the fundamental problem I see for the whole book. I think it, I think it colors the whole thing. Uh, everything else is colored by this hermeneutic. So what I want to do for the remainder of our time is just um, make a few comments about specific points in the book that I think are interesting. Uh, and further problematic. I'm not going to go through the full description of this here, but there is this um, discussion about how we interpret the sons of God. Uh, Heiser wants to develop a, a, a certain hierarchy where the sons of God are sort of higher level uh, divine beings, as he uses that language, and that angels are lower level kind of deputies that are sent out to, um, to send messages, messages for God. Um, and yet, I think the Bible is shows us throughout, there's, there seems to be, um, I don't think the language in, in the Old Testament is that, is that specific to give us that kind of clarity. Really, I see 
sons of God as um, another way of describing angelic beings. And I, I think even Heiser points that out later in, at various places in his book that the Septuagint translates these, these expressions with, with uh, angelos or angelon. Um, and then probably the best one, the best example is in Daniel 3, 25 and 28, which he doesn't mention this one, but in that context, we actually have Bar Elohim, which is sons of gods, uh, um, used in a context that is equated with Malak, a messenger, uh, which is quite, quite interesting. I think a more problematic issue is um, here, the image of God and humanity and the celestial beings. This comes, takes us back to Genesis 1, 26, where we have the expression or the statement that we all know, let us make man in our image. Heiser, following others, takes this plural pronoun as a reference to the divine counsel. So everything in the book is all about the divine counsel. That's the way we understand the Bible. There's this divine counsel in the background, and we should see that here in Genesis 1, 26. He dismisses the Trinitarian interpretation, that is, this is the triune God speaking uh, among the Godhead, as, in, as an incoherent explanation. He says that on page 39. I would agree that the biblical author most likely did not have the Trinity in mind when he wrote this statement. But of course, if we believe in the inspiration of Scripture, which I hope we all do here, and I believe Heiser does too, or, or he did as well, we have to remember that it is duly authored. Men were moved along by the Holy Spirit in what they wrote. Is the Trinitarian aspect completely out of place? Heiser's dismissal of this interpretation as incoherent is not entirely fair. Nonetheless, his explanation about what it means to, be, to image God is very helpful. I think he has a lot of good discussion here about the meaning of the image of God in man. But ultimately, he is inconsistent with his assertion that us, in this context, refers to the divine counsel. So the argument is, let us make man in our own image is the divine counsel speaking uh, to the heavenly host. Let us make man in our own image. So here's the problem with that view. He specifically states, let us make humanity in our image. If the first us includes both God and the divine counsel, the second us must as well. There's nothing in the text that would tell us we're supposed to switch um, reference there. And I don't know what you would do with the second us, even if you did take the divine counsel view. Such an interpretation completely shifts the meaning of being an image bearer of God. Um, he says in, in his context here, uh, or he doesn't really deal with this context, but in, in the divine counsel view of the problem that scholars have noted, and this is not just between me and Heiser, and this is something that scholars have noted across the board, what, what do you do with that second our image? There doesn't seem to be any support in the Bible that we are made in the, the likeness of divine beings, or these heavenly beings. That doesn't seem to be anywhere in Scripture. So that's a problem. So, not only that, for the divine counsel worldview to work in this passage, it would need to say something like, let us make humanity in my image. The shift from the plural to the singular pronouns, however, occurs in the report of what God actually did. If you go ahead to verse 27, we read there, God created humanity in His image. In the likeness of God, He created Him. And Heiser doesn't deny that this is, it's in the image of God that we're being created, but 
he doesn't, uh, he doesn't clarify how you would get around that problem. I somewhat agree with Heiser that he says this, quote, Hebrew grammar is the key, page 42, in any valid interpretation. But his analysis does not account for the Hebrew grammar of the passage itself. And he, he comes up with a very interesting uh, interpretation that I've never, I don't know that I've seen it anywhere. Maybe I have, but I, I, I don't remember that. But I don't know that I've seen this anywhere. He says that his observation that the plurals in verse 26 inform us that both God's families, the human and the non-human, share imaging status. So he says, we are made in the image of God and the sons of God, the divine beings, are made in the image of God. So we have um, humanity in bearing, bearers of God's image for the earthly realm and angels or divine beings, as he calls them, are the image bearers for the heavenly realm. This is completely nonsensical. Verse 27, as I've just observed, tells us that God created humanity, not the heavenly realm, in his image. Heiser's exegesis of this passage appears to be confused and draws conclusions from the text the text does not support. He continues to assert this as fact throughout the book based on this passage here. Uh, you can see that on page 59, but this interpretation is never established. He never gets us to the point of how does the grammar support that, and, and uh, frankly, it doesn't. There's another possibility that Heiser never mentions. And I, I, let me just pause here. This is the thing that I think the book is so dangerous about the book, is that he does not deal with all of the possibilities. Or at least he doesn't give a, at least a nod to the other views out there, uh, which I think would be important for him to do. There are other possibilities. Scholars have noted the special use of the plural in reference to God, often called the plural of majesty. If we follow this interpretation, the use of the first-person plural pronoun in this passage would refer to the plurality of God's majestic attributes, perhaps as an elevated way of speaking. To be clear, doesn't, God doesn't always speak this way, but sometimes He does. And we see another example in Genesis 11:7 when He says, let's go down and see what the humanity has done here, because nothing, now, if we don't intervene, nothing they attempt will be, uh, they'll be able to do whatever they want. Furthermore, this viewpoint would not entirely be inconsistent with the Trinitarian perspective. No, the original author would not have understood the Trinity in his language. It is, however, consistent with what we know from progressive revelation of the triune God. Later, Heiser's discussion of this passage is somewhat misleading in that it leaves out other plausible interpretations of the material and simply offers a caricature of competing views. Uh, another thing that he talks about, I'm not going to spend, for time's sake, not going to spend a lot of time engaging with this, but the Satan. Um, he, he wants to say that every place we have Hasatan in the Old Testament, it doesn't refer to Satan. It refers to the accuser. And the issue that scholars note is we have an article on this word, and Hebrew doesn't allow you to use an article for a proper name, just like we don't in English. Um, the Mitchell here, for instance, or... Uh, you know, all, you just you don't use the in front of a name, the Matthew. Uh, people used to. There was a, a a blog joking D. A. Carson calling him the Don at one point, uh, but but we don't we don't use that language anyway. But one one thing that Heiser doesn't deal with here, I I tend to think that the accuser is a reference to the person eventually known as Satan. And I think one of the things that we have developing that Heiser gets confused on is that in, you know, in the Old Testament itself, we actually start seeing an example here and there of the Satan without the article. 
Satan in a few places. And by the time we get to the New Testament, we have, I think, a development where the name or the, the title is turning into a proper name. And it becomes reanalyzed at later, in later texts in the Old Testament and then also in the New Testament as a proper noun because of this uh, characteristic. Um, so I, I, think, I don't think that's really an issue. And I, I'm, I had a professor in seminary uh, who, who endorsed this book, who, who brought this up to me when I was a student, and I've had trouble with that ever since. And in recent years, I've come to reject this idea that we can't ever see this, uh, the accuser ever referring to Satan in these contexts. Uh, another point that's interesting um, is Isaiah 14. Uh, Isaiah, Babylon, and the Rephaim. Isaiah 14 is fascinating. I love this text as well. It depicts the tragic descent of the king of Babylon into the realm of the dead below. I've spent some time with this passage in my own research and consider it to be one of the clearest examples of a biblical author's polemic against Canaanite beliefs regarding the gods, kings, and the dead. Almost in passing, Heiser states that in verse 13 through 14, the divine counsel context is transparent, page 85. Uh, and, and that's what happens in the book. Uh, you know, no offense to Heiser uh, at all, but he always assumes that he's made the point clear that the divine counsel is here in the book or in the Bible. And he never establishes that. Walton, I don't believe, has established it, but I think it's just they are assuming it, and I don't think you can really see it as others before them have, have argued. Here's the passage that he cites, Isaiah 14, 13 through 14. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise up my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mountain of assembly on the summit of Zaphon. I will, make, I, will, I will send to the high places of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. This is um, a caricature of the king of Babylon speaking here. The passage records from the mouth of the king of Babylon that he intends to, quote, sit on the mountain of assembly on the summit of Zaphon. Again, Isaiah interprets the aspirations of the Babylonian king in terms of Canaanite mythology. Indeed, the mountain of assembly on the summit of Zaphon is a direct reference. Now, don't, we don't want to miss this. It is a direct reference, I believe, to Baal's divine counsel and all that the Babylonian king is aspiring to. We know this fact from Ugaritic texts. Uh, it referenced the summit of Saphon, uh, and that's the place where Baal resides and conducts his business with the gods in the divine council. Does this reference to Baal's divine council therefore prove the biblical author believes in the legitimacy of a divine council? It is certainly what the Babylonian king aspired to. That's what he is claiming that he's going to accomplish. But instead, the prophet tells us he is destined to go down to Sheol among the dead. Another group mentioned in this passage are the Rephaim, also uh, appearing in verse 9. In Ugaritic sources, these entities were envisioned as the divinized, royal dead, who are portrayed as traveling throughout the heavenly realm, feasting with the gods Ale and Baal in the heights at their invitation. So we have these Rephaim, Rephaim texts that show them they're, they're, they mount up on chariots and horses and they go throughout the divine realm, throughout the heavenly realm, feasting 
and traveling, and they have all of this power. People in, in uh, Ugarit make prayers to the Rephaim, uh, these kings who have died and gone on to the realm of the dead and are overseeing the affairs of the kingdom of Ugarit. So the Rephaim exercise power over the affairs of the earthly kingdom of Ugarit, but the prophet will have none of this. He polemicizes the whole mythological institution of Ael and Baal, their divine council, and the so-called royal dead who supposedly feast with them on the mount. Heiser thus fails to account for the fact that the, the divine council he attempts to read into the Old Testament is actually the object of the prophet's critique here. Again, I would argue rather strongly that the so-called, quote, divide council worldview, Heiser casts as the backdrop of the biblical author's understanding is part and parcel with the Canaanite mythological worldview. As such, it is the object of critique throughout the Bible. In this regard, I am convinced that Heiser has foisted the Canaanite mythological worldview as his own filter for interpreting the Old Testament. Uh, what about, I, I, oh, I'm sorry, I, I didn't uh, get to that point, but let's go on to the next one. The sons of God and the Nephilim in Genesis 6. You've got to talk about this. I mean, that, that's, the, that's, that's the meat, meat and potatoes of this whole thing. I would simply caution here that Heiser is much too confident, or was, he, he understands all this now. No, I'm only kidding. I would simply caution that Heiser is much too confident in his interpretation of Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Again, this passage is fascinating, but at the same time, highly controversial. And I have had students over the years really get into this and uh, get into this passage about defending which view is right and which view is wrong. And I think, uh, you know, as the psalmist says, out of the mouth of babes. Uh, that one time we had a conversation when I was in, in graduate school, some, we were getting into it in a discussion uh, in a class and our, our professor made that comment. He just started laughing and he said, out of the mouth of babes, just kind of putting us in our place. The meaning of this text has puzzled commentators and theologians alike. Uh, Heiser's characterization of the Sethite view, that means the sons of God marrying or having relations with the daughters of men, was the Sethites intermarrying with daughters of Cain. And the divine kingship view, that is so-called so deified kings practicing polygamy. Those are two main interpretations of this passage. He views these as, unjustifi he, he views these as, as unjustifiable and he dismisses them. One point that I have already raised regarding Psalm 82 is that he fails to mention the alternative demon possession view. That is, whatever the sin of this text was, which I don't think we entirely know, it involved inordinate demonic influence in the affairs of humanity. Uh, one technical point that I should make here uh, regards his discussion on the meaning of the Nephilim, the word itself. I think he's confused regarding the Hebrew morphology of this, of this word, pages 105 to 107. He claims the word Nephilim cannot mean fallen ones because of the eye vowel that's used here which would require something like nafulim or something like this. This observation is simply incorrect. Hebrew attests a widely used adjectival pattern, a katil adjective, corresponding to the form of the word here, which would simply mean fallen ones. And I, 
I'm really surprised, that's the thing that I keep coming into, coming across in this book, is that he, he's a better scholar than this, and I think he's making mistakes or making errors, or I don't, I don't know what he's doing, um, but they're just not, it's just not correct. And so it's very dangerous for people who don't know Hebrew reading this stuff, and you think, well, that's what the Hebrew says, it must be right. Well, it's not. It's not what the Hebrew says, and it's not right. The giant stature of these individuals could already be signaled by, in the text by the same entity, uh, giborim, or mighty men, as mentioned uh, in uh, verse 4. And Heiser points that out in footnote 1 on page 111. A fine, aside from this technicality, building one's theology on a controversial passage with so many unanswered questions is unwise and misguided. In the end, Heiser's summary section outlining the strategy of Genesis 6 is excellent, and I would say that I think this is where he really gets it right. He says on page 108, Yes, there were giants, renowned men, both before and after the flood, Genesis 6-4, but those offspring in their knowledge were not of the true God. They were the result of rebellion against Yahweh by lesser divine beings. Genesis 6-1-4, along with 2 Peter and Jude, portrays Babylon's boast and horrific transgression, and even worse, the catalyst that spread corruption throughout mankind, humankind. And I would say, despite Heiser's claim to the contrary, some version of this conclusion could be reached by any one of the interpretations historically given for the passage. Um, it's not required to follow his interpretation of this passage to have this theological um, interpretation or application of the passage. It just doesn't, does, it's not necessary. Uh, messenger, uh, a bit of a technicality here, messenger, uh, angel of Yahweh. That's a very interesting context there where he's talking about the Malach Adonai. And I agree with him that at some point in the narrative you'll have this messenger of Yahweh introduced and eventually in the text you find out that it's actually Yahweh himself. He's revealing himself in some human form in these manifestations in the Old Testament. This is not new with Heiser, uh, but it is interesting this idea of the two uh, to Yahweh's view that has developed within Ju Judaism, Second Temple Judaism. And I think they're really trying to get to the, you know, they're trying to figure out what's going on with these manifestations of Yahweh um, that seem to suggest two Yahwehs. And of course, people have pointed out the connection to Trinit later Trinitarian uh, framework in, uh, that's made clearer in the, in the New Testament. It's not that it develops in the New Testament, it's just made clearer as you get further along in progressive revelation. Uh, Nephilim bloodline, so we got to go back to the Rephim again real quickly. Heiser proceeds to argue, and I think this is so bizarre. Um, Heiser proceeds to argue that the main object of Joshua's conquest of the land of Canaan was to eliminate the elimination of the Nephilim bloodline throughout the Promised Land. Uh, he really gets into this in page 192 to 214. He ties together references to the Nephilim, the Anakim, and the Rephaim throughout Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua arguing that the divine command to destroy certain cities and their inhabitants completely, um, this was a response to the giant problem. That is subjugate to cherem, complete destruction, or the ban, as some translations say. Throughout his discussion, Heiser focuses on the bloodline of the Nephilim, which he maintains is still fully human, despite resulting from angel and human sexual relations, and the need to wipe out their remnant from the land. What is missing from the discussion, however, is, I would say, from Genesis 15:16, the iniquity of the Amorite was not yet complete during the days of Abraham. 
uh, to borrow that phrase from Genesis 15. In my opinion, the biblical witness is not clear on the nature of the angelic sin mentioned in Genesis 6 and 2 Peter. Indeed, the sons of God sinned in some way that the depravity of humanity spiraled out of control and threatened God's covenant plan of redemption. Simply tracing the bloodline of the Nephilim and their kind downplays, I believe, the significance of the wickedness in view. Um, again, I would say he doesn't entertain this other possibility, the royal ideology, and looking at the royal ide ideology rooted in idolatry uh, that's often associated with the Rephaim, as I mentioned a moment ago. The Rephaim, it's not the problem so much of their giant stature, even though that is pretty overwhelming, but the real problem there is what they represent, their ideology, their departure from uh, uh, the, the worship of the true God. Their ideology is part and parcel with this royal ideology at Ugarit, dead, deified kings. And that's front and center in the biblical polemic against them. Rather than representing a remnant from angelic sins of the past that need to be wiped out, these Amorite deified kings represented a direct affront to Yahweh's kingship over his people. They served as a gateway to idolatry in the form of a royal mythology promising peace, prosperity, and future success. Furthermore, I would argue that those cities condemned to harem were likely the most consumed by such idolatrous practice or ideology. And one would only assume, or a woman would only spread, this would only spread among the people of Israel were it not stamped out. I think Heiser's presentation does not fully appreciate the theological uh, or ideological underpinnings of the Rephaim. One last point, and then I'm going to draw some conclusions. He makes a comment about cryptic revelation, um, and I think this is getting into this stuff that's kind of a secret hermeneutical key that I think is, is not entirely helpful, um, and I think that kind of goes along with some of this ancient Near Eastern interpretive approach. Conclusions. The limitations of this kind of presentation prevents me from fully engaging every point of Heiser's book. What I have attempted to do here is simply highlight its aim and purpose and the reasons why I believe they are misguided. But that's not enough, however, simply to critique the overall purpose of the book, even though that is important. The number of erroneous interpretations founded upon what turn out to be misunderstandings of basic Hebrew grammar is rather alarming to me. His emphasis on allowing the biblical text to drive our interpretation is certainly commendable, and I would agree with him on that. But such an approach does not have to jettison the history of interpretation spanning the gap between us, the modern readers, and the ancient authors. I just don't think that's wise. Besides, many of the interpretations espoused in this book cannot be defended from the text. That is one category of difficulty I see in this presentation. The other categorical uh, problem is that many otherwise valid interpretations are never mentioned, much less entertained in Heiser's treatment of highly controversial biblical passages. Now, to be fair, he does draw your attention to the companion website to go and look at this stuff more. Uh, but to not have any reference to these things in the text itself is misleading, and I think a lot of people aren't going to go to the website. They're just going to read the book. If we are truly going to allow the scriptures to drive interpretation, we at least need to offer a fair representation of other viewpoints, even if we disagree with them in the end. 
when we force ourselves to engage with competing views, which I hope all of you in here will do, and that we will always do as a practice, when we force ourselves to, to engage with those competing views, it sharpens our own understanding of the interpretive issues arising from a given text. That's an, a very healthy thing for us to do. And if we don't, uh, then we're not really reading the Bible. Quite frankly, the central assertion that the Old Testament reflects, quote, a divine council worldview is never proven. We may note Heiser's probing question on page 32. What does God need with a council? And his subsequent answer, God doesn't need a council, but it's scripturally clear that he has one. It is not scripturally clear, but the initial question is certainly valid and will lead us to consider other questions. Where does this concept come from? What is the function of this council? How would such a council function within the monotheistic framework of the Old Testament? Aside from the simple fact that, um, um, aside from the simple fact that the divine council is arguably absent from the Old Testament, if we were just to leave that aside for a moment, the theological ramifications for accepting one requires further reflection. As I've already mentioned, the origin of this concept in the mythological worldview of the Canaanites is of primary importance. For critical scholars who have already rejected the inspiration of Scripture, the problem disappears. As Heiser acknowledges, these scholars simply affirm the mythological and polytheistic origins of the Old Testament. And he doesn't accept that. If we push the ancient Near Eastern interpretive approach espoused among some evangelical scholars to its logical conclusion, that is, let me just clarify what they're talking about, we cannot interpret the Old Testament incorrectly unless we filter it through the conceptual framework of the ancient Near East, as Walton has proposed. So if we don't do that, uh, if, we, if we push that to the logical conclusion, we will eventually arrive at the same conclusion reached by non-confessional critical scholars before us. And this is the big point. The Bible is a product of ancient Near Eastern thought. That is the issue. The Bible is a product of ancient Near Eastern thought. In other words, Israel's ideological framework is no different than that of its neighbors. Evangelical scholars are not there yet. Let me be clear, they're not there yet. They're still trying to carry out this middle ground. Walton is still trying to carry out this middle ground, but I believe um, that students of Walton, I can already see this, uh, they will not continue to hold on to these things, I, I don't believe. I think another generation will, will kind of go, draw out the logical conclusions of these approaches, and uh, who knows where we'll be at that point. In fact, it's always alarming to me that many of these students that, are, that have been kind of brought along on these ideas have left evangelicalism. Um, they're not there. They're doing other things. Heiser certainly was not, and was not one of these, uh, did not follow this view of a critical scholarship and argued vehemently against such a conclusion. That is, that uh, the Israelites were just ancient Near Eastern in their ideas. However, this is perhaps the most dangerous aspect of this overall approach. It undermines the inspiration of Scripture by minimizing the ability of God to reveal Himself to the Israelites in a distinctive way, external to the conceptual world of the ancient Near East. 